The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Hello, and welcome to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and I'm the host for the podcast. My husband, Steve Siegel, is the producer and co-founder of the podcast. Just a reminder to please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to listen to podcasts. And also please check out our YouTube channel and subscribe there as well. Today's episode is episode number 335. And today we are talking to a lady named Annie Grace. At 26, Annie was the youngest vice president in a multinational company's history. And her drinking career began in earnest. By 35, she was in a global C-level marketing role responsible for 28 countries. And drinking close to two bottles of wine a night became a ritual. Annie Grace's professional success came at a personal price she no longer wanted to pay. She knew alcohol was no longer serving her, yet she didn't want to suffer through a life in a daily battle for sobriety, feeling deprived and constantly trying to avoid temptation. So let's talk to Annie Grace and find out how she did get clean and sober and how she's helping others do the same thing. Annie Grace, thank you so much for being willing to talk to us on the podcast today. I'm actually very excited to hear your story. I realize I say that probably to most of the people I talk to, but I am always excited to hear the story. So thank you for being with us today, Annie. No, thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. I appreciate it, Joni. Absolutely. So tell us, where did you grow up and how did you get introduced to alcohol and kind of what led you down that road? Give us your background. So I, I grew up um, in Colorado in the mountains and uh, I had hippie parents. I actually ironically grew up in this tiny little one room log cabin on the backside of a mountain with no running water and no electricity. Wow. And yeah, it was very unique. My parents didn't drink though at all. Um, they, so I didn't, I didn't really have a cautionary tale against alcohol. I didn't think, oh, this is something that I don't want to be doing because look at their behavior equally. I didn't have any, um, I didn't have, you know, really any scaffolding really at all for it. I didn't have somebody pulling me into it thinking, oh, I want to be like my parents. This is great. So when I moved, I got married. I went to college. I did not drink very much in college, very few times. Uh, I can pretty much count them on one hand. And then I got married. I moved to New York City. And one of my first days on the job, somebody came up to me and said, hey, like we take the new girl out for happy hour. And I was like, oh, okay, great. So I went out for happy hour. I ordered a martini, a Cosmo, because I was watching Sex in the City. I thought that was what you ordered in <laughs> 2005, which is not really what people were actually drinking. And um, I remember getting the bill and it was $25. In, in 2005, it was $25 for one drink. And I was, for me, that was, I don't know, it was like just so much money. I was student loan debt. And so I was just like, this is ridiculous. I And um, just decided I wasn't participating in happy hour. So fast forward, another job, same city. And I just don't go to these things because I, I just don't see the point in, in wasting my money. And my boss came up to me and he actually said, Annie, you know, happy hour is a lot like the golf course. It's where we're all too busy during the days. It's where your deal, like your ideas are showcased. The deals, deals are, done. are made. Yep. Right. This is where you want to be. If you care about your career, you need to really start showing up here. And so I was like, oh, I care about my career. Okay. I was, you know, 26 years old. And, um, but I was 
thoughtful in the sense that I was like, okay, well, I know I don't want to sabotage myself by, by being super drunk. So I actually had a method. I'd have a glass of wine and then I'd have 16 ounces of water and then a glass of wine. And sometimes Joni, I would actually go into the bathroom and throw up the last glass of wine just to keep drinking. If I started to feel tipsy or if I started to feel uncomfortable. Um, And I was just so like, this is a, this is a job. This is what I'm doing. I'm keeping up with, you know, mostly men, mostly older than me and alcohol is addictive. I did not know that. I, I literally did not know that. I actually wonder if we were going to walk around the street corner and ask people, do you know alcohol is addictive? I, I really wonder how many people would be like, yeah, I know it's addictive or how many people think, oh no, it's just addictive to a certain percentage of the population. And so fast forward a decade, I was living in between the UK and the US, had been promoted many times, was was working this very high level global marketing role um, in charge of 27, 28 countries. And I was consistently drinking at least two, sometimes more than two bottles of red wine every single night, feeling wow. incredibly, incredibly stuck. Wow. Okay. Keep going. So what happened after that was I would do, you know, the logical thing, which was, all right, so this is starting to create problems. And those problems looked like not being able to remember what I said or did the night before. They looked like hangovers. They looked like throwing up. They looked, you know, starting to feel bad, starting to notice blood vessels in my cheeks that I hadn't seen before, starting to notice like yellowing in my eyes, just just not good. And I was like, okay, well, no problem. I'll just, I'll just drink less. And it was in that moment of really deciding to just drink less, no problem, that I think the misery started because it was miserable before, but it was a different kind of miserable. Because here's the thing: it, it just wasn't easy. It wasn't easy to just drink less. There was um, this deep belief that alcohol was important to my life. I had, I'd, I'd come to believe that alcohol helped me relax. It helped me have a good time. It helped me loosen up. I believed that it was necessary for my career. I thought it helped me network. I thought it helped me be more present as a mom. I had two young boys at the time. And and so when I would drink less, I would inevitably feel deprived. I would feel like I was missing out. I'd feel like I was outside of life, that I was um, just kind of existing, just sort of surviving. It stole the joy from even not just the not drinking, but also the feeling like I was outside of everything really stole my joy. And so I would uh, be able to do it for a period of time and then just have a F it button and it would be like, whatever, this is not, not that big of a deal. And that cycle persisted for probably five or six years Mm. of really taking breaks, proving to myself, I didn't really have a problem. I wasn't really that (laughs) right? Like I I had the proof. And so then going back to it and overdoing it and then taking breaks and on and on. And one day I was actually coming back from the UK to the US and we had been drinking all week long and we topped it off with a basically all nighter in somebody's hotel room. And I, these are, I was in my thirties. Everybody was at least their thirties, forties, sometimes fifties or sixties, like not, not kids anymore. We're not kids anymore. But we're 3 a.m. watching some, you know, football game on the TV. And it, 
I was walking back to my room realizing, okay, I have about an hour and a half before I have to go to the airport, not going to be able to fall asleep. So I just got in the shower. I packed up my stuff and I went downstairs to wait for the restaurant to open, which opened at six. And so I'm sitting outside the restaurant. Somebody finally opens it. And all I'm thinking is like, I'm, I'm starting to feel hungover. I'm starting to feel sick. I'm like, I just have to get on that plane. Like I just have to get to the airport, get in the cab, get to the train, get on the plane. And I order some greasy food and I'm like, okay, hair of the dog, right? So I ordered a mimosa and the waitress, she told me, she's like, well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to open the champagne unless you plan to drink the whole bottle because like nobody else is going to want a mimosa for like two hours. (laughs) And I was like, oh, I'd never drink a whole bottle. Of course, (laughs) I drank two the night before uh, at least. And and she, she said, well, I could, I could give you a screwdriver, which was vodka and orange juice. And, and I'm thinking, well, this is one of those little like alarm bells inside my own brain that we create for ourselves. It was like, okay, well, it's all fine as long as I'm not drinking hard alcohol. Like a mimosa, that's fine. That's, that's a breakfast drink. Right. You know, posh people right. drink mimosas. But as long as I'm not drinking hard alcohol at six in the morning. But I was really desperate. So I had a few screwdrivers before getting in the cab to the airport. And I remember arriving at the airport and I had plenty of time because I hadn't gone to sleep. I was there super early. I just wanted to get there, right? So that I could, you know, make it to the plane. And um I just started crying and I I wrote in my journal like something has to change. And I was I was so afraid and I felt so helpless because that last six years of making these promises and then eventually breaking them, even if I could keep them in the short term, just had undermined my my faith and trust and credibility for myself. And I was in so much pain, emotionally, physically. Sometimes the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 866-989-4499 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. And I remember this moment of, you know, the the narrative in my brain was just so toxic. What's wrong with you? Oh, this is disgusting. Don't you care about anybody or anything? How can you do this to yourself? You like don't even deserve to live. This is horrible. And um, are you an alcoholic? Do you have this problem? What is your like all of these these really toxic questions all surrounding this narrative of what is wrong with you? Right. And then in this kind of strange moment, the, a new question appeared. And that question was why? Why did I used to be able to take it or leave it? And now it feels like this fermented liquid in the glass is controlling my whole life. Why was it something that, um, you know, I didn't even, I, I didn't need to relax or I didn't need to have fun. I have, I've plenty of memories, all of college where I wasn't drinking very much, if anything. And and why now is it that if I don't do it, I'm so miserable? And so I actually made two um, 
promises to myself in that moment. And I understand them to be relatively radical now in the kind of traditional recovery narrative. But at the time, uh, I didn't know anything about anything. So I was just on my own little trip, right? But these promises were that I was going to stop beating myself up. I was going to stop trying to stop drinking and let the cards fall where they would fall. Like I, I recognized in that moment, the incredible pain for me was coming so much from the self-loathing and the self-hatred. And I also saw in that moment that that self-loathing, that self-hatred, that anger, that frustration for myself, um, sabotaging any trust or faith I had in myself, any any sense of, of autonomy or uh, you know, any sense of empowerment, like all of that was eroding at, at my even will to live. Like it was, it was to that point. And I saw that that inner conflict, that intense inner dialogue of hatred was, was really a driver in my drinking. Huh. It was that interesting. Cause then you can quiet it, right? If you keep drinking, you can kind of quiet that inner dialogue. Yeah, you. I mean, what do you want to do when you're in pain? You want to escape, right? So it it's it's fascinating to think about how even if we're witnessing conflict across the street, we have a physiological body response. We don't like it. Or even if we read about it in a book, even if we um, see it on a movie, right? We know it's actors. We still don't like it. But right. But discount how painful it is to be at war inside your own mind because yeah. it's we've just become so used to it. Yeah. And I could see that that war, that pain was really, really having an impact. I had started drinking more since the moment that I decided to cut back. And I could see that very clearly at that Interesting. moment. I decided to stop trying to stop drinking. Yeah. But I said, I'm, I can't just do that by itself. And so also in that moment, I decided to find out the answer to the question, why? Okay. Why was it that I used to be able to take it or leave it? And so I spent the next year researching, um, researching why. And I made a list of every single reason I drank, and I methodically went through the list one reason at a time. And we live in this beautiful day and age where you can just download a scientific study and and read up on it and learn. And I learned about the brain. I learned about the the toxin that is alcohol. I learned about the body. I learned all of this stuff. And after about a year, I remember walking out of my office and my drinking had been decreasing this whole time, even though I wasn't tracking it or paying attention to it. But I remember walking out of my office and telling my husband, I, if you want to get drunk with me again, I think tonight's the night because I'm not going to drink after this. I'm just, I think I'm over it. And did and, he drink? We, we, I, that was, I was about to ask you that question, like how did this affect your marriage and your family and all of that? You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, or, and please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. Yeah, he was a drinker. He oh, he drank. Okay. He was like, okay. So okay. we went ahead and and got drunk. And um yeah, I just I just decided I I wasn't gonna be drinking anymore. And you know, that was more than eight years ago now. Wow. Now has he stopped as well or so my husband stopped um a few years after that. I before I actually wrote the book that I wrote based on my journey, This Naked Mind. 
I was like, you have to, you have to read this. It talks about us. It talks about our, you know, love life. You, you have to read the book. And so he read the book and he was like, just so you know, this is your thing, not my thing. I, I don't really have any desire to, to change or to stop drinking. And I was like, okay, cool. Like, you know, no problem. And, um, but then a few years after that, I remember he, he, he said something and he's like, gosh, I don't remember the last time I've had a drink. And we sat down and tried to remember. And it had been like eight or nine months. And wow. like, oh, that's interesting. And so he really accidentally, he he doesn't remember the last time he had a drink. He just very much was like, I just don't want to do it anymore. I it, it was it was very organic. He just he just stopped. So he hasn't he hasn't drank in probably five or six years now. Wow. That's amazing. So Tell us then what happened in terms of you now wanting to help other people. So I had, um, so I had all of this really just mind blowing research. It was, it was for me just this experience of, are you, are you sure for real? I can't believe that. How come we don't know this? What, why is this a secret? This makes no sense. Like give me an example, Annie, give me an example. Okay. So for, for example, uh, alcohol itself actually uh, steals your brain's ability to feel joy. Okay. And we think it makes things so much more fun. Right. But what happens is that you drink and alcohol will numb your uh, pleasure center. And so it will give you 20 minutes of a high, but as your blood alcohol content is rising, but then your blood alcohol content starts to fall and it gives you two to three hours for the 20 minutes of kind of like uneasiness, discomfort, feeling tired, feeling not quite present with yourself, you know, these not very nice feelings. Now we don't think that those feelings are from the drink. We think that 20 minutes of nice feelings are from the drink, but what happens then is that your body actually comes in and says, I want to create homeostasis. So even in that 20 minutes, it actually releases a counter chemical to turn down that 20 minutes of pleasure. The problem is alcohol is a toxin. Job number one is to purge it from the body. So basically, if you have a drink, your body will do crazy things. Like it will stop balancing its blood sugar. It will stop digesting its food. It, it puts other processes on hold in order to purge the alcohol from the body. But this other chemical that comes in, the one that's calming down your ability to feel good, it is not a toxin. It's naturally created in the body. So your body does nothing to purge it. So the alcohol is gone, but you're left with this feeling of, of everything just not quite feeling right because your body had had balanced out the overstimulation that the alcohol had, had created for the brief period of time. Wow. And so over time, uh, you and you notice this in your lived experience as a drinker is that the first time you were at a sporting event and you had a drink, it might have been really fun, but eventually you can't enjoy a sporting event without a drink. Right. And you're like, oh, it's the alcohol that's so much fun. No, it's just the alcohol is you need something strong enough to break through all of the um, both, you know, psychological and then and then actually physical chemical associations that your body has built around drinking. Exactly. And, you begin to become addicted. So whereas maybe the first time you go, you can have half a beer and you feel great. The next time you go, you need the whole beer. And then the next time it's two and three, and it just goes from there. I, yeah, I get it. I get it. So you took all this research and you turned it into something super duper positive. Yeah. So I took it and I just put it out online for a free download because I, I just wanted people to know this information. And um, I, I figured out how to 
pasted it up on a website. Uh, I shared it in a few different like communities that I was in and 20,000 people downloaded it in two weeks. Wow. And yeah, it and people, I started getting letters from all over the world, uh, emails from people saying, oh my gosh, this helped me. This is incredible. I, I didn't know this stuff. This is so, so powerful, so impactful. And, um, and somebody actually wrote me, one of the people who had read it, he said, you should make this a book. And I was like, oh, I've got this job. I've got these kids. I don't have a platform. And so I was like, no, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't know how to do, like, I don't, I don't have an audience. Nobody's going to give me a book deal. And he's like, oh, you can, you can just self-publish. And I was like, really? And so he sent me the link to kind of Amazon create space. I ended up self-publishing um, this naked mind. And then it, the same thing happened where once it was published, it just kind of went viral um, word of mouth. And so eventually it is now traditionally published with, with Penguin Random House because it got so much attention as a and sold so many copies as a self-published book that I've gone on to to write more books and you know they've all been traditionally published but that's where it all started. I love it. I I love it. Uh, yeah, this naked mind for listeners by Annie Grace. That's awesome. And then on your website, do you do coaching? Do you do consulting? Um. You- so we. What I realized is that there's there's this huge a huge aspect of the population who like I was for years where alcohol was not doing me any favors whatsoever, but I didn't even know it was addictive. Mm. Right. I didn't even know that there could be a life without it. I just thought this is what people do. I wasn't, I wasn't awake to that. I wasn't questioning it. So I actually created something called the alcohol experiment, which is just a free 30 day challenge online with videos every single day to help people who um, you know, just want to want to dip a toe in the conversation, take a break for 30 days, test, have their own experiment. You know, the hypothesis is I'll feel better, I'll sleep better, I'll look better, I'll maybe lose a few pounds. I'm gonna, you know, be more awake in my life. Let's see if it's true. Let's see if alcohol is really, really your friend or really your foe. Let's test it out in your life. No, um, you know, there's no need for somebody to make a declaration or make any decision or do anything besides just really experiment. No and judgment, try- really. No commitment. Just try it. Commitment, no judgment. Just just try it on in your own life. Be your own kind of little <laughs> Petri dish. There you and, go. Um, yeah. So that was created in 2017. Do you know how many people have done it just out of curiosity? Yeah, we've had 500,000 people do the alcohol. Wow. Yeah, it's been incredible. Wow. Very well done. I mean, well done to you for just kicking alcohol yourself, but well done for that because, I mean, that's huge. Yeah, it's, wow. been, it's been really something. Wow. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, then, so and, your, that, and give us your website. It's uh, The alcohol experiment is at alcoholexperiment.com. And, oh. then, um, and it's always free at alcoholexperiment.com. And then my website is thisnakedmind.com. Right. They're both my websites, but... The al- <laughs> alcoholexperiment.com. Yep. I think that's amazing. I I cannot thank you for you know the research that you did and also, you know, sharing what you learned. Um I think so often um and we never ever um what's the word dis what anybody believes or what anybody thinks. But I think that so often with drug addiction and with alcohol addiction 
um, people who want to recover are sort of taught that it's incurable and they can never, and, and if somebody tells you you have something incurable like cancer, what do you do? You prepare to die. So I just feel like if someone tells you that with alcoholism or drug addiction, what are you going to do? You know, and I, I like that your, your approach is, is not that. <laughs> yeah, it's incredibly helpless to, to think you have a disease that's incurable that, you know, you'll never be able to do anything about and that you're just going to have to. I remember that in my own experience, like when I started to ask that question, like, oh my gosh, what's wrong with me? Am I an alcoholic? And, and you start to think, am I just going to have to live? in the, in the margins, am I going to have to, you know, not go to social events anymore? Am I going to have to live outside of this, of this life? And some of those things you may choose to be true, right? You may choose to have a different social life than you used to, but the fear that comes with that, you know, it almost predicates the rock bottom experience because we're unwilling to make that drastic of a shift in our identity and our beliefs about ourselves until the pain gets great enough. And so one of the things like with the alcohol experiment that I'm really passionate about is sort of backing up that conversation saying, you know, why don't, why don't we take this experiment without any, without any fear, without any labels, without any rules, without any judgment. And then we can decide for ourselves, the role of alcohol in our lives without having to, get ourselves into a pain, a place of pain where it's almost as if the decision has to be made for us because we just, um, you know, yep. made such a massive thing. Pain and shame and blame and regret and the whole thing. And what you give people is you, you said helpless, also hopeless, and you give people hope and you give them something that will help them. And, um, I just, I think that that's huge. I, I think we need to replicate you about a hundred thousand times because then we would have, what is that? Like 50 million people who would be able to, to do the alcohol experiment. I like that. Um, I, I think that. that's amazing. What's next for you? Are you writing more books? Um, I'll put up the cover of this naked mind. I'll put that up on the video and also I'll put up the, the two different websites, but what's next for you? What's your next project? Yeah, I'm writing a book right now, which is, um, you know, the the premise is is really simple. And again, it's one of these things that we can confirm in our sort of lived experience, but has not been revealed in the scientific community until the last five or six years. But it is that behavior change has now been more or less proven to be a factor of emotion rather than a factor of time. So um, Dr. B.J. Fogg out of Stanford in his book, Tiny Habits, uh, Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett, there's this new research that's coming out that's, that's showing us that, you know, it, it, it can be correlated that your behavior can change if you can do something for 60 days or 90 days or a year, but the causal thing in behavior change is emotion. And we know that this is true. We know that when we've made a behavior change in our lives that we feel good about, that we feel excited about, that it sticks and it sticks almost effortlessly. And when we are trying to make a behavior change in our lives that doesn't make us feel good, that we aren't excited about, that we, in some cases, at least for me with drinking, really dread, I really dreaded having to take those breaks and to not be drinking, then that is much harder. And that was evidence for me as well. There's bits and starts and, you know, um, so much pain and, and losing faith and trust in myself. And so now that this research has come out, 
the question that I'm posing in my book is, okay, well, then how, how do we shift our behavior um, through emotion, through the tool of, if I know that I need to feel differently about my behavior, feel differently about drinking or feel differently, more specifically about not drinking, how, how does that happen? And I think one of the main reasons that that can happen is by removing negative emotion. And just so really starting to look at and unpack all the places where you've just mentioned it, Joni, that negative emotion has crept into hijacked and dominates the addiction conversation. Yep. So for just a real tangible example is, you know, in the big book, um, it's just in black and white, we're, we're abnormal. And all you have to do is go back to the playground and that feeling of feeling abnormal or feeling not normal within a peer group to know the intense pain of the idea that that somehow I'm not normal. Yeah. And so my question is, if, if that creates pain, if we know that as drinkers, we numb pain with more alcohol, is that really a belief that we should be collectively holding on to? And the science is pretty clear that when it comes to addiction, your brain is actually very normal. It's doing exactly what brains are designed to do. It is getting addictive to an addicted to an addictive substance, right. which simply means that the substance releases too much dopamine. Your brain responds because dopamine says that thing you just did, do it again. In fact, for your survival, you need to do that again. Your brain gets confused neurochemically to think I need alcohol or whatever drug I'm taking for my survival. And then that drug or alcohol feels as important to you as food or oxygen. And suddenly we're in this place and and to say, oh, that's not normal behavior, especially when it comes to alcohol. I mean, the label on our on the only label in the US that is on like and even alcohol commercials is drink responsibly. So if you human being can't drink alcohol responsibly, there's something wrong with you. Not the, not the substance right. that's addictive and right. that we've chemically created to get people more addictive. We've made it stronger over time. It's not that, that's not the problem. It's you person. Yep. And so I'm unpacking in this next book, how much negative emotion we're swimming against when it is really positive emotion that's going to win the battle for us. Yep. I think you're absolutely right. I love your approach. People who are listening, you need to check out any books you can by Annie Grace. But first and foremost, This Naked Mind. And if you or someone you know maybe has a little bit of difficulty controlling the alcohol, check out alcoholexperiment.com and, um, and try it. You, you have nothing to lose and so much to gain. Annie, thank you so much for talking to us today. I love what you do. I love your story. I Anyway, just thank you for everything you're doing. Oh, it's been an honor. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the platform and the time. It's amazing. Absolutely. I hope you enjoyed that interview. I personally think that Annie's approach to addiction, whether it's alcohol or drugs, is a very different approach from most of what we've heard. Maybe close to um, when Jason was on from Narconon, because Narconon kind of has a bit of that positive viewpoint, but you know, just a very positive, um, a positive approach to addiction. And while I realize she is focusing on alcohol and um, a lot of our listeners have maybe different addiction problems, I almost think if you looked at the alcohol experiment and you happen to be addicted to cocaine or painkillers or whatever, it might work for you. 
Might as well check it out. One website, thisnakedmind.com, and that's the name of her book, This Naked Mind by Annie Grace, and alcoholexperiment.com. Check them out. They could help. We'll be back again next week with another interview. You have been listening to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, reach out to us on Facebook or go to www.theaddictionpodcast.com. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com.